So we went, uh, we went to Poland this year, and it was interesting to me that one of the stories that this doesn't seem as big a story when you're in Poland with all the different stories that come up, but for some reason just it really got to me. For, for whatever the reason, he didn't tell it this year. Those of you who remember, until we got to the cemetery in Warsaw, it was late at night. There was a whole mess up with the, um, we didn't go to the Warsaw Cemetery because there was a mess up with COVID. And then we got to the cemetery in uh, Lublin and it was uh, raining or whatever. When you go to the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery, and by the way, if anybody here wants to come back with us next year, you're more than welcome. Um, when you go to the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery, I mean, there's, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of graves. It's one of the largest Jewish cemeteries in the world. Um, you could spend weeks there, literally. And you have to know how to navigate your way through this cemetery. It's massive. And if you're walking down the main path, you're passing all these famous personalities, right? Uh, Yud Lamed Peretz, who was one of the principal authors, Shalom Aleichem, you know, Yiddish, uh, you know, Yiddishists and Yiddish authors and famous stories. Um, you know, Mojitsu uh, Rebbe is buried there. There's some amazing quarters there. So you come on this one kever, and it's this big, beautiful, white stone marble uh, tombstone. It's literally about like, you know, sort of the size of the bima, like up in the air. And there's a man named Adam Chernikov and his wife. And what's fascinating about it is that you look at the date of when he died and when he was buried, and it's in 1942. Now, if you know a little bit about what was going on in Warsaw in 1942, that's amazing. I mean, who got, a, who got a burial, much less a tombstone, in 1942? So who was Adam Chernikov and what was his story? Okay? Summer of 1942 was when the Nazis started shipping the Jews of Warsaw off to Treblinka. Some of you will remember um, that there were about 950,000 Jews that were taken from Warsaw and all the surrounding areas to Treblinka in about nine months, okay? And over those nine months of 1942, 1943, um, 100,000 Jews a month were murdered in Treblinka. And when the Jews got to Treblinka, Treblinka's not like Auschwitz. There's nothing there. I mean, it's like the whole camp was nothing there. There were 50 guards in the entire camp of Treblinka. They had no barracks there. In fact, when you got off the trains, if you were discerning, you suddenly realized, where's the camp? And, and you, you must have been filled with this, this sense of dread because you suddenly realized you'd come to the end of the line. The train tracks end in the memorial because you came to the end of the line. They took them off the train. They stripped them. They shaved them. They robbed them. They gassed them and they burned them. And every Jew who was there was stripped, shaved, robbed, gassed, and burned in less than an hour. We spent more time in Treblinka than 900,000 Jews who, who ended there did. And by 1942, certainly in the summer, the Jews in Warsaw started to get a sense. Now, Adam Chernikov was the head of the Judenrat. The Judenrat was the Jewish council. Every town that the Nazis started to work in, right, they employed a, you know, they got the Jews to do some of their work for them. And I'm not for the moment judging, like, should a Jew do this, should a not Jew do this? Does that fit in the tefillah of Lamal Shinim? That's a whole interesting discussion. Um, for example, in Lublin, they assembled 10 people. They had um, records of who the notables were in the town. By the way, if you go to Yad Vashem, we will go to Yad Vashem on Yom HaShoah, but this we won't do. 
And one of the reasons I like to go to Yom HaShoah, on Yom HaShoah to Yad Vashem, is because you get a taste of it and then you decide to go back on your own. That's a place worth spending a day. You can find the exhibit there um, and you can go into the computer room and find the files. You could actually probably find them online of the Nazi records of Jewish communities. I did this once and I found, I grew up on the west side of Manhattan. And even though I grew up mostly in Lincoln Square Synagogue, every once in a while, because I had friends there, I would go to the Jewish Center, which was on 86th Street, you know, if you know the place. And it was like a big show in Manhattan. And when I was going through these records, I found the Jewish Center. And the Nazis had a document of the different synagogues in America, the communities in America, New York was prominent on the list. The Jewish Center is there. They had a list. The Nazis had a list of the board members at the time of the Jewish Center. They knew the name of the rabbi. They were planning eventually to take over the world. I mean, that's Hitler's famous line, today Germany, tomorrow the world. And when they got to New York, they were going to, you know, collect the notables. And they would have had a Judenrat in New York. And they might have picked somebody that I, you know, might have known. And that's what they did. In Lodge, they picked ten people. And mysteriously, in the afternoon, they first convened the Judenrat, nine of them disappeared. And what we think happened, the, the tenth, Chaim Romkowski, either because he realized he had no choice, or for other reasons, became the head of the Judenrat. That's a whole other story. The Nazis basically said, okay, you ten are going to be on the Judenrat, and you're going to do what we say. And somebody said, I refuse to do that. So they shot him in the head. Then they said to the next guy, how about you? And they shot him in the head. Eventually, people just agree, because they have no choice. So Adam Chernikov was the head of the Judenrat, and the Nazis came to him, and he became aware that they were shipping. The Nazis sort of made their plans available, that their goal was that they were going to move this population of what they considered vermin, 450,000 Jews in Warsaw, to work camps and labor camps where they would live a better life. Now, if you're the head of the Judenrat, and you're giving them the names, because that's what they made the Jews do, give them a list of names, and then they had to collect them, and you see all these trains going off to the east and coming back empty, you know, sometimes eight hours later, you start to realize something's wrong here. Nobody can find this massive work camp where hundreds of thousands of people are. So Adam Chernikov, everybody understood you don't want to get on those trains. And so one day Adam Chernikov, you know, goes to argue with, with the Nazis because he's supposed to be a dignitary. And he's trying to get people off the list and he manages to get like, you know, wives of some of the, the heads of the labor battalions and he manages to get some of the doctors. And Janusz Korczak has an orphanage. There's 300 orphans there. And he's trying to find a way to save these orphans and the Nazis refuse. And no matter what he'll do, they're getting on the train. And when they put those 300 orphans on the train, and some of you heard the story, and if not, you'll hear it again when we go to Yad Vashem, he suddenly realizes, there's no point to this. I won't be a party to this. He goes back to his office. He had a cyanide pill. He writes a suicide note, which was found under his hand, takes a cyanide pill and dies at his desk. And he says, as he writes this note, maybe this will make the world take notice. I remember the first time I heard this story, and because he was a dignitary, because they, you know, he, he died on his own, like as a single human being, and they brought him to, so they wanted to honor him because he was the head of Judah, and they realized what he'd done, and so they, they made him a proper kever. And later after the war, they made this a proper monument. So that's an interesting question. Adam Chernikov was put in a particular position. Did he live up to what he was meant to do with that position? Did he answer the call? Is that what we would do? Very difficult question. Now why do I bring up this question? 
You know, sometimes you see like uh, Victor Kalani and he's, you know, in, in, the, in Emeka Bacha leading the 77th Battalion. It's clear that in a particular moment he was the right man at the right time. And, and Hashem called to him and he said, you know, Avigdor, Avigdor, and he said, he named me. Here I am. And sometimes a person's in a situation and you look from the side and you feel like he didn't answer the call. You know, I don't know, uh, Barack Obama, who says there's a red line, if you remember the story, and if they use chemical weapons against their citizens in Syria, we're going to do something about it. And then for whatever the reasons, and you know, we don't have enough inside information to judge it, it appears at least, or certain, certainly many people felt, he didn't answer the call. You know, you could debate what this is happening now. If you would have told me five years ago that in Eastern Europe, tanks would be rolling, hospitals would be bombed, millions of people become refugees, I would never have imagined this. It's the same kind of scenes that you're seeing that came out of the Holocaust. That they're murdering people. And what is the world doing about it? Is, I don't know, again, it's a very dangerous thing to judge people. I'm, not, I'm really not. I'm just asking it as a question. I wouldn't want to be in his shoes. Is Joseph Biden, is Emmanuel Macron, is, is, is Boris Johnson, the, the head of England, are they answering the call? Yes. I'm not saying yes or no. I'm just asking the question. It's a question you have to ask. So why do I mention this? Because this week's parsha, right, has a very interesting detail that people sometimes notice, but it's worth a discussion. Okay? And he called to Moshe, I'm translating literally, and he called to Moshe, and Hashem spoke to him from the tent, from the Olmoed the tent of time, the tent of meeting, whatever you want to call it, from the Mishkan. And then he tells them a whole thing that basically starts our journey into Korbanot. Okay? Into Korbanot, into sacrifices. There's an interesting thing about this Pasuk. Right? Anybody know the interesting detail about this Pasuk? If you open up a Sefer Torah, it's one of the rarities in the Torah, yeah? There's a small Aleph. When a scribe writes a Sefer Torah in every Sefer Torah in the world, the word Vayikra has the Aleph, the last letter of that word, is small. It's much smaller. There are, by the way, other instances of this in the Torah, and that's a whole interesting part for Purim, but not for, now, not, not for right now. So Chazal noticed this. They noticed this. Why is there a small Aleph? Right? So, for example, the Torah Tamima, Rav Baruch HaLevi Epstein, likes to quote Gemara on this topic. Right? Quotes the following Gemara in Yoma. Right? Um... I got the wrong one second. Well, okay. The the mender says in Torah Kornim that Moshe Rabbeinu is uncomfortable, right, being called. It's like, imagine that I'm in the supermarket and, I don't know, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett happens to go into the cinema with his security detail. And I'm standing by the tomato sauce because my wife wants me to get tomato sauce. I can't decide which one. I'm doing the husband thing. You ever go to the supermarket and watch the husbands with their phones? I'll take five pictures and find out which one you want me to get. Okay, it's part of married life. All right, right? And in walks Naftali Bennett, but he's got somebody to take the picture for him. And we have a little schmooze. Hey, Naftali, how you doing, Mr. Prime Minister? We have to, I come back to you and say, you're not going to believe this. I met Naftali Bennett. And that's so interesting. What did you say to him? And that's not the same as I can't make sure next week because the Prime Minister asked to meet with me. Now, we might have the same discussion, but it's a completely different moment. Like, if you're called into the then you're chashuv. So, Moshe is uncomfortable with the fact that Hashem is calling him. Right? So, he wants to write the word differently. He says, not vayikra, ela vayaker. Now, vayaker is related to the word mikre. What's a mikre? 
It happened. It just happened. A Baal Keri is a person who has an unfortunate accident in the middle of the night. You know, he has a, a release of, 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 of semen, whatever, and it's like an accident. It's like an accidental meeting. Right? And Hashem says, no, no, no. This is not an accident. You are who you are. You're called. So they compromise and they write a small off. That's an interesting topic. But what is, what is the real question here, right? The real question is, what's that doing here? Now, if this was the first time I found this word, then maybe I could hear it. But the fact is that this word appears a number of times. In fact, the most famous example is in the story of the burning bush. Because in Perak Bet, Vayar Hashem Kisarli wrote, right? Moshe says, I'm going to see this incredible sight, the burning bush. Hashem sees that Moshe goes to see and then begins the journey of Moshe Rabbeinu which will ultimately end with the exodus from Egypt, Mount Sinai, the Jewish people entering Eretz the whole nine yards. And what does it say? It says, He calls it. So this is not the first place he's called. So why isn't this, like Moshe Rabbeinu is writing this Torah up on Har Sinai. He's already, why doesn't he change the word there? Right? And you can find this again. There are a number of places that you find this. Right? In, um, in Yitro, in Perak Yudtet, Pasuk Chaf, 19, verse 20. Right? Moshe Moshe is called up to the mountain. Okay? And you can find this in a number of different places. So, right? So we see the concept of Kriya, and there's no small olive. So why is there a small aleph here? What is this small aleph doing here? Right? Another question on this verse, which is really interesting. What's missing here? You ready? I'm going to read this again. What is missing? You ready? You're going to tell me what's missing. Okay? Vayikra el Moshe, and he called Moshe, Vayidaber Hashem, I love me, all What's missing? Right. It says, Vayikra el Moshe, and he called Moshe. It doesn't say who called doesn't say who called him. Now we figure it out because then it says Vaidaber Hashem Mosheban. And what's the difference between being called and being spoken to? So here, right, the Balaturim is the one, right? Moshe wanted it to be like Mikri, that's the Balaturim. Tur Balaturim was the, the tour, the same tour after which the Shokhanar patent is order, the son of the Rush. What does Rashi say here? It's a language of, of love and affection. Right? We say this in... When Bilam, right, who is not exactly a savory character, the, 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 the Chazal have difficulty with him, it says, Vayikar Elohim el Bilam. Hashem appeared to Bilam, not the same, he doesn't feel that he's called. He feels like Hashem just shows up. It's just like more random. And Rashi says, Vayikar Lashon Arai. It's a language of like temporariness. It's not mission oriented. Lashon Gnai, it's a negative term. Right? Lashon Tumat Keri. It's a seminal mission. A person has a certain type of impurity. It's an association with loss of potential. It's not who you're supposed to be. 
The only reason Hashem appears to Bilam is to show how much he loves the Jewish people that he's going to tell him not to curse us and so on and so forth. So Vayakir is not only happenstance, it's not only random, it's also negative. Now that's interesting. Why is it negative? What's actually negative about it? What does it mean? Right? And... The Torah Tumimah quotes the Gemara in Yoma that says the following. Lama hikdim Why does Hashem first call him and then talk to him? Lemda Torah derech The Torah teaches us a healthy way to behave. Shalom yomar adam davar elim When you tell something important to somebody, you got to call him first. Now this is interesting. Let's say you have, I don't know, an employee and the employee is doing a good job, and you want to tell them they're doing a good job. Or maybe you want to give them a raise. Or maybe they come and have asked you, you know, they, they, they're struggling, they need a raise, whatever it might be. So you could just, you know, be playing basketball, and they walk by and say, oh, by the way, I want you to know, I talked to Scott, I'm going to give you a raise. Now, the person should be happy, right? The person might not be happy, because... That's not the way to tell somebody that they got a raise. You say to them, I'd like to meet with you about this. Let's have a meeting. We're going to talk about this. You give them a chance to prepare for it. What is the most important thing that you communicate to a person when you do that? Imagine that you say to me, you want to talk to me. Right? You want to talk to me about, I don't know, you're thinking about, I don't know. What's the most important thing you can talk to me right now? Shana Bet, right? You want to talk to me about Shana Bet. Right? So let's say, like, I'm on my way to the bathroom. I say, oh, by the way, Shana Bet, good idea for you. And I go to the bathroom. So, like, that's not serious. So listen, let's have a meeting. When's a good time to talk? When will we set it up? So on one level, that seems to be the Torah Mima. But now listen what the Torah Mima says. Right? That you shouldn't just start talking about something. You should give a person a chance to prepare for it. This is interesting. Where is the first time I find the concept of being called? Kodesh Baruch calls Adam Shem says to Adam, where are you? And what does Adam say? Right? I was nervous, so I hid. Says the Torah to Mima. Even though Hashem loved Adam and he knows Adam is close to Adam, he won't just speak to Melodul. He calls him first. Right? Right? He calls out, where are you? Where are you? So he gives you a chance to, to think about this. Right? Now, what's the interesting question here? So, why is this idea then doesn't appear in the beginning of the Torah? Why don't Chazal say, Vayikra, and it doesn't say, Vayakir? And we have this whole discussion about is it happens there or not? It says, because. Right? He prepared him for this thing, for this davar, before he talked to him. Right? So, and one last point, and then we can put this all together. What's 
what's the fundamental difference between Vayikra and Vayakir? And why does this appear here without it being clear to me who's calling? And why isn't Vayidaber, which is the, the speech of the mission itself, enough? And why, by the way, is Hashem calling Moshe Rabbeinu from the Oel Moed? Like if Hashem calls you, what's the difference where Hashem calls you from? What does that even mean? So I want to share with you a different idea. And this idea will help us to understand this and put it all together. What does it mean to be called? And what does it mean that the Torah isn't clear that Hashem is calling me? I think what that means is in every moment in your life you're being called. The question is, do you know who's calling you? You know, we wake up in the morning. And some of us are almost up to this, so I'll be able to share it here and we'll... What do we say? Elokai nishama shanatata bitaurai. Atavrata, tayetzarta, tanafachtabi, atatiditlami meni, kozman shanashama bekirbi, right? And then we say, amachazin shomot lefgarim itim. Right? First of all, I say Elokai, which is a kind of an interesting word to use. What would we expect? Elokeinu. That's usually how we talk in Tefillah. My personal God. The neshama that you gave me, right, is pure. You gave it to me, you formed it in me, etc. And when I wake up in the morning, you return it to me. What does that mean? So the truth is, before you got to a right, this would be a complicated discussion. What does that even mean? But now that you've been here, right, so there's an obvious question, and you already know the answer. What's the obvious question? What do you have to do here to understand this tefillah? What do you have to do? You have to define your, which term do you have to define here? Neshama. What's a neshama? What does it mean, my neshama? So we've actually talked about this. What is the essence of the neshama? Ratzon. The essence of the neshama, right? I don't have a soul. Sharp. I don't have a soul. I am a soul. The essence of who we are is the ratzon that we have. Is the will that we have. And we've talked about this. And the will, the ratzon that we have, is a gift that we're given. You cannot explain to me why two boys, even by the way, twins, may want totally different things, even though they grew up more or less in the same environment, because we're given different gifts. One boy wants to play cello, and one boy wants to play violin, and one boy wants to play guitar. No interest whatsoever in learning to play violin. You had no interest in learning to play guitar. We're different. Some people want to be engineers. Some people want to be computer scientists. Some people want to go into Chinuch. Some people want to stay Shanabat. Some people don't want to stay Shanabat. Contrary to popular belief, I do not believe that every person is meant to want anything. Right? Now, there's a list of things that you should want in this world. That's called Torah and Mitzvahs. But unless you can point to me a specific source that every human being should want to do whatever it is, Shanabat, army, college, depends on who you are. You have to, you have to sense what that internal drive is within you. So when I go to sleep, I'm a slab of meat. In fact, one could make a case for saying that sleep reminds me that I'm a human being, that I have my limitations. We're not God. We wake up in the morning, what means we're alive again? What, what's the fundamental difference between me as an animal, me as a human being? Ratzon. That I have a ratzon, and then I have to decide what to do with that ratzon, with that will. That's exactly what's going on here in this parsha, Right? Vayikra means that you're being called. Vayakir means it's random. Now let's think about this for a minute. We're about to enter the world of Purim. This is Shabbat Zachor. Next week we're going to have Purim. 
You know what Purim brings to the world? Purim brings to the world the concept of doubt. Right? We call it Purim. It's random. Right? I mentioned before, Mordechai, who is the man of Ruach HaKodesh. He's in the Sanhedrin. He's the leader here. He's the equivalent of the Navi in the story. And what does he say? Who knows? Maybe for this moment you got to the palace. What do you mean who knows? You're the Ruach HaKodesh guy. You know. The world of Purim is where you just don't know. Hashem is hidden. You can't see Hashem clearly. We look at the world now and we don't know what Hashem wants. It's, it's random. The festival's name is it's a lottery. It's random. We don't know if Hashem is calling us. What does Purim teach you? Purim teaches you that you have to see that even in the most random events, it's all part of a plan. How many years does it take for the Purim story to unfold? From the beginning of Ahasuerus' Suda until the story of Haman's Suda with Esther, you may know? Ten years. It's a ten-year journey. And you could easily look at the events of those ten years as a chain of random events. They're not connected. You have to choose to see events as connected. Right? By the way, what is the most elemental, most important aspect of Purim? What do what the Jewish people achieve on Purim, if I know? Pardon? Kimu v'kiblu. What is Kimu v'kiblu? That they rise up and they receive Torah. When did they really receive Torah? At Arsinai. So what was missing in Arsinai that they had to do on, Yom, on, on Purim? Right? Hashem turns the mountain over them in Harsinai, right? Like they're... Like you have no choice. Jewish people say Nasev and Ishma because they have no choice. If God came down, sat in the space menders, right? And looked at you and said, you have to stay on a bed, you would stay on a bed. It just wouldn't mean anything. Right? If you absolutely knew Hashem was talking to you, if you absolutely knew Hashem wanted this of you, you absolutely knew it, you would have no freedom of choice. So Harsinai is where the entire Jewish people were given their mission and we had no choice. It was such an overwhelming... How could you choose not to believe in God when you saw the splitting of the sea, when you saw, you know, the, 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 the ten plague, when you saw it, when you heard Hashem's voice? You saw sound. There's no way. But because, because, because of what happened, we lost our freedom to choose. And if you haven't chosen it, it's not really yours. Purim is the opposite. Purim is so underwhelming that you don't really know if Hashem is doing it. Where is Hashem? If they could say that they're going to kill every Jew in one day, then Hashem must be where God. So we lose, we lose our, our, our clarity of vision. And we have to choose to see Hashem in the world. And when you choose to see Hashem in the world, you get to a different level. That's exactly what this is about. Isn't it interesting that this appears in the beginning of the Sefer of Korbanot? The Ramban says the Korban, the purpose of the Korban is in the word Karov, is to bring me close to Akash Baruch Hu. By the way, it's very interesting. Do we have sacrifices before Sefer Vayikra? Yes. Yeah. Right? At the foot of Harsinai. Vayizbechuz vachim, v'olot. The Jewish people, Moshe Rabbeinu, offers up sacrifices. But you know what's different? Before Sefer Vayikra, anybody know what's different about sacrifices? You will not find, you will not find, this is what the Svasema says, I didn't check this, but I'm pretty sure if he says it's true. You will not find a place before, I think, I didn't check this, but Hashem says it. You will not find a place before, I know Adin Blumov's going to check this later. You will not find a place beforehand where it calls them Korbanot. They're called Zevach, they're called Olot, they're not called Korbanot. There's something here that's about to change our relationship. The Korban is going to become a vehicle, not an act of fealty, an act of relating, an act of closeness. 
And what is that closeness? What brings me close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu? That I feel that I know what Hashem wants of me. And when I feel that I know what Hashem wants of me and I live up to that challenge and I feel that I'm doing what it is God wants of me, and it's not clear, it's something I have to choose to see, that changes me. Brings me closer to Hashem, allows me to fulfill my purpose in this world. That's exactly what's going on here. Right? And by the way, this is true in every moment. And I'll just finish with the last story. So the brother of Rav Meir Alter. Rav Meir Alter was the son of the Ger Rebbe and the brother of Rav Avram of uh, Alter, who was the, the Rebbe of Ger. He was the son and the brother of the Ger Rebbe. And he ended up on one of these trains to Treblinka. And he gets off the train, and it's pretty clear what's going on. There's no barracks. You could smell it in the air. They've heard rumors already. He's a tremendous Talmud Chacham and a very discerning person. They've been in a cattle car for days. They're hungry, they're starving, they're thirsty. And he sees a guard. And he's a leader. It's clear that he's the leader of this whole flock. And he walks over to the guard and says, I need that canteen. Now the Nazis were under order to do whatever they needed to do, not to panic the Jews. Don't tell them what's going on. So even though under normal circumstances, the guard might have pulled out a pistol, they don't want to, like, okay. So he's a little surprised. But he's so shocked by the fact that this Jew is, is clearly the leader of the community. He's asking for his canteen. He actually, without thinking, gives him the canteen. And the Mejitarepi opens up, the brother of the Mejitarepi opens up the canteen, and he starts to pour it over his hands. And he makes a bracha on Tilas Yadayim. And the guard looks at him like he's out of his mind. Out of his mind. And he says to his chassidim, and there are not very many survivors of Treblinka, but some of the people who survived were from the Zunder Commando, and apparently this story was overheard. That's what uh, Rav Yitzchak told us. He says to his chassidim, we are about to perform the highest mitzvah a person can perform. We're going to be Mekadosh Shem Shemayim, because this physical world is just temporary. You know, you die today, you die a hundred years, it's not about whether you die, we're all going to die. It's about how you die. And if we have three minutes left on this earth to perform this mitzvah, then I want to do it in a state of purity. Doesn't the tilos yadayim? Can you imagine? Now I'm not judging for the moment, but just to be in a place like that. That's a person who feels not just that he has a calling, but that every moment is a calling. Every moment in your life is a kriya. It's a calling. The only question is, do you hear what you're being called to do? There are big moments in life where you go to college, what you do with your life, who you marry, whether you choose to go to the army, all those types of questions, and they're little moments of call. You know, you walk out of the base medrash, and I don't know, somebody spilled something. And you could just ignore it. Or you could realize Hashem gave you an opportunity to do a mitzvah, maybe somebody won't slip as a result, and everywhere in between. And, and, and those things change who you are and bring you closer to something meaningful in your life. So Sefer Vayikra takes us on a journey of how we offer ourselves. What does it mean to offer up your life? It means that you create the life for yourself that's a life of service, of making a difference to people in this world, of making a difference to those around you, that the world ends up better because you were here every single day. So that's really the mitzvah. And I would just, fin- I would just finish by saying, you know, very soon we're entering Benazmanim. You know, there's some yeshivas where like after Purim Benazmanim starts, that's not the case here, you'll see. Uh, we actually view the last two weeks of this month as really powerful and the learning gets really intense and it's pretty awesome to see. Um, but then all of a sudden, like, you're on your own. There's nobody giving you shear in the morning. Nobody telling you you have to get up. 
You know, if Noam was saying, listen, you should be in class, no, what's up for me, I missed you in Rambam, or whatever it is, it's all on you. And you get to discover, like, were we building something? They just built a Mishkan. They just finished the Mishkan. Now comes Vayikra and say, okay, so what did we build this for? We built this to accomplish something. So we just are spending this amount to build something. You're building something. You're building something for yourself, in yourself, and in the community. And then we get to see in Ben Asmanim, what do we build? Some of you will go through Ben Asmanim and you'll be able to realize, I'm different than I was six months ago. I built something meaningful, I'm not the same guy. Some of you, unfortunately, that's just the statistical, will fail. You'll fall. You'll fall into patterns, you'll fall into habits, and you'll realize, so what was the point of all this? And you'll pick yourself up and say, okay, I have kites, man, I can rebuild this. Right? How awesome would it be if you finish Ben Asmanim and realize it wasn't Ben Asmanim. There was Man Kharef, there was Man Kaitz, and there was Man Gavriel Buchol. There was Zman, you know, Niv, right? The, the, you get to build your Zman. And that's the challenge of Zayv So let's stop here. Food for thought on Parshat